Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Lord Jesus, we're just so grateful for your word, God, and what it is to us, Father, that you have chosen to reveal yourself uh, through these pages um, and, and through the stories and the, the poetry and all the wisdom, God, it's all from you. So we are just grateful to hear from that this morning. We're grateful for John and um, what you've put on his heart this morning. So we pray for him right now, Lord, that you would speak through him. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in each of our lives in these times together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, there, there's more to a Sunday Memorial Day weekend than picnics and uh, sporting events and things. We are going to get to hear from God's word. And I'm so grateful that he does keep speaking to us uh, in ways that are fresh and relevant, even though some of these events happened thousands of years ago. Uh, for those of you who are new, we've been going through a series that's been rooted in the gospel of Mark. So we take a closer look at Jesus, who he is, and how we respond to him. Uh, this is technically on some level kind of the final week in that series. I don't know that that actually changes things much, but I thought I'd mention it. Uh, We're looking in Mark chapter 14, and and in verses 1 through 11, we're going to see some things that I believe are going to encourage us about giving our very best to Jesus. We're going to look at an episode that happens here, and, and it speaks to whether our worship is a waste or whether it's worth it. And here's what the gospel says, verse 1 of chapter 14. It says, Now the Passover... And the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. So Mark sets this in place for us to give us a context of tension, of scheming, of opposition to Jesus And it's kicking off the last part of the story of Jesus' time on earth, which climaxes in his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. And so we know before what happens next that there are those who are already looking for a way to kill Jesus. And so verse 3 picks up. It says, while he was in Bethany. Okay, who's he in this verse? You're in church. The answer is probably, it's Jesus, right? When Jesus, while Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. How's that for a nickname? Yeah. This is probably someone that Jesus has previously healed, but it was known because of the condition that he was in before Jesus broke in and changed his life. And what we see is this is a relaxed setting. Jesus is reclining at the table. It's Memorial Day picnic at Simon's house is what you know, is going on. And it says that while Jesus is relaxing there at the meal, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, which you can look up on Google if you're interested. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And some of those who were present, they were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste? Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. 
Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And Mark now connects the next thing into this story. And he says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. This passage describes, it depicts for us a clash of two opposing value systems. There's two different perspectives, two ways of evaluating what's really worthwhile. And one of these, let's let's put it over here, is a value system that focuses on the worth of Jesus. That says Jesus is the most wonderful, the greatest, the most valuable thing there is. And so he's worth anything. He's worth everything. Nothing is too much for Jesus because he is the most wonderful, most precious thing in all creation. But over here, there's another value system. And really, this is the perspective, apparently, of most of the people in the room. That when this woman comes and she breaks the jar of perfume over Jesus, most people are looking at this and saying, well, that was a complete waste. And the conflict between these value systems is one that contrasts the worth or the waste of valuable money. Because over here, this value system is commodifying everything. It's working to set a numerical value on it and asking, was that really the best use? It wants a good return on every investment. And it's looking at Jesus and saying, it could have done something better with that than give it to Jesus. These are two different perspectives, and they're both in the same room at the same time with different people. I think part of what's particularly offensive to the commodification perspective that's looking at things in terms of of waste and return on investment, is that when this woman breaks the jar of perfume and she pours it all over Jesus, they say it's so offensive that there's no results to show for the value of what was in that jar. It's offensive to this value system when there aren't visible results, when there's nothing to show for what I gave, what I did, what I put into it. And so this perspective says it's wasted on Jesus. And really, the reason I'm talking about this today is that this tension between these two value systems is just as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. This is a tension that you and I live in, that we struggle with and face in the decisions that we make day to day. Is giving my best to Jesus really worthwhile even if I don't have something to show for it, and it seems like it's just gone. What's really worth it in worship? And this value system, the second value system, is criticizing and rebuking this woman very harshly. And how, So how would this value system over here evaluate what Jesus himself is about to do? 
Because we know from the way Mark writes his gospel that what's about to happen is Jesus is going to give his own life. He himself is going to be broken and poured out. How would this value system evaluate the cross? Well, from that perspective, we'd say, what a waste. What a waste. Jesus was just getting started in his ministry on earth. He was only ministering for three short years. There were so many more people that could have been healed, that could have been taught, that could have been touched, could have been delivered. There were so many unjust government structures that could have been turned upside down and changed if Jesus just hadn't died so soon. What a waste. You know, when we're looking from this value system, you know what we end up doing? We end up harshly criticizing God himself because God's not doing things in a way that lines up with our own value system. We end up saying, God, you're doing it wrong because I'm wiser than you are. I know better than you do. God, let me tell you, there's a better way you could be doing things. There is an extravagance to the cross that seems wasteful to a worldly economy. But really, there's, ultimately, there's only one opinion in the room that mattered eternally. Jesus also spoke about what the woman did. And when Jesus spoke, he answered the critics. He doesn't even speak directly to her, but he's answering their criticism. And he does it from this completely different value system. He comes at this from a perspective that shows that it's not the values of the world, but the values of heaven that have the final say. You see what Jesus says? When the critics pile on her, he defends her in verse 6. I love how he says it. Leave her alone, Jesus said. She's done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus disagrees with their value system. They say waste. He says beautiful. And in that, you know, I don't know, I'm probably exaggerating a bit with this, uh, but you, it kind of has the feel of it, like, feel like everybody in the room over here, and then like Jesus being the only one who's looking at it from this perspective over there. Maybe not, but Mark pictures it as two groups, two opinions, and the majority, including several of Jesus' own disciples, are looking at it this way, and Jesus rebukes their rebuke. And he says, no, it's not a waste. She's done something beautiful. When everyone else is saying you could have done something better, Jesus says, that's what it was intended for. There's nothing better to do with it. And here's what I want us to see from this. She says, Jesus says, she's done a beautiful thing to me. And ultimately, the value of everything that we do is found in its relation to Jesus himself. The actual real value of the things that we get to do in this life are found in their relationship to Jesus personally, to Jesus himself. And when Jesus says she's done a beautiful thing, it finds its value here. She's done a beautiful thing to me. This value system, all the critics that are saying she's wasted it, are saying that the value of this perfume will be found somewhere else besides Jesus. But Jesus shows us that the real value of our actions is found in relationship to himself personally. 
What determines whether our actions have real value or worth is whether they have to do with Jesus. Jesus finds value and worth based on how we respond to him in the opportunities that we've been given. And from Jesus's perspective, it's not about saving things for the most financially efficient or advantageous way to capitalize on our assets. Instead, it's about whether we're seizing the God-given opportunities we have to love Jesus with what he's entrusted to us. It's about whether we take the chance to do something beautiful to Jesus when we have the opportunity. I want to urge you, don't miss your opportunities to do something beautiful to Jesus. Don't miss your opportunities to give to Jesus. Please don't be so concerned about the value of your possessions and your assets that you miss the opportunity to lavish them on Jesus when you have the chance. Jesus defends this woman's extravagance on the basis of her having a limited time opportunity to do something beautiful for him. And to Jesus, that's what made it all worthwhile. Do you see how Jesus says it in verses seven and eight? He's saying, you won't always have me. She did what she could. Don't miss your opportunity to do what you can. Please don't finish your life with a legacy of missed opportunities to do something beautiful for Jesus. What will your own pile of assets mean for you and be worth to you in that day when they're just a monument to your fears instead of your faith? Let your life be marked by seized opportunities to give to Jesus what you can when he gives you the opportunity. Because a true waste from heaven's perspective A true waste is when we hold on to something and we miss the opportunity to do with it what we should have done. And live in Jesus's economy where extravagant worship is worth it. Don't live in an economy that only values visible results. Live in a value system that comes from heaven that finds beauty in lavishing on Jesus what you have the opportunity to give away. You know, many of us, have relationships where you have people in our lives where it just feels like it's a waste. There's so much that we put into these relationships and so little visible results that we can see for it. I want to encourage you. Jesus says when we do things for people that he cares about, we're doing it to him. And if you wonder whether it's worth it, hear again the words of Jesus. She's done a beautiful thing to me. You won't always have me. She did what she could. Brothers and sisters, we won't always have the chance to do something beautiful for Jesus, to do something special. This woman, Jesus said it, she did what she could. And what he goes on to say is that we're going to keep talking about what she did everywhere that the story of Jesus is proclaimed throughout the whole earth. We're going to keep telling her story wherever the good news about Jesus is spoken. You know what? We're going to keep telling her story because Jesus says it was valuable what she did. What everybody else saw as waste, Jesus saw as so valuable. And yet it was unreasonable. It was extravagant. It was inefficient. Yes, by some measures, completely wasteful. But so is the cross. 
So is God's own action to redeem and save humanity and renew the world. This woman in anointing Jesus so extravagantly beforehand, she's pointing prophetically to the cross where the son of God himself will be broken and poured out for the salvation of the world. She's showing us that there's a redemptive perfume that God's going to pour out over the earth to bring salvation. And when we see Jesus for who he really is, worship is worth it. Even when we have nothing to show for it, even when it doesn't produce results, even when our giving doesn't seem to make a difference for anyone else, even when prayer doesn't seem to change anything, and even when it seems like our sacrifice is just being burned up. That's the offense of authentic worship, that our sacrifice often seems like there's nothing to show for it, and it's all burned up. But it's Jesus' evaluation when he says, you've done something beautiful that rings in heaven for eternity. There's nothing worth more than giving lavishly to Jesus. I think for us to really understand what Mark's getting to in this passage, we can't skip over the fact that he is focusing attention on the role of money in competition with Jesus. Here in this passage, money is set up as the God that is in competition with Jesus for what's really worthwhile. You see, when they were evaluating and criticizing this woman's action, they were looking at the perfume and saying it could have been sold for a lot of money. Money is what they were valuing. And then you saw again at the end of the passage, Judas goes to the chief priest and he offers to betray Jesus for money. That's what it says in verse 11. They promised to give him money, so he looked for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. What did they promise to give him? Only a couple people read this. Okay, let's, let's get this together. What did they promise to give him? And what did he agree to do? To betray Jesus. I want you to hear this. If money is more valuable to us than Jesus, we'll end up betraying him. If you love money more than you love Jesus, you will end up betraying him. We can't serve both God and money. And Jesus challenges our value systems. He confronts us about things that we love more than we love him. And if you and I aren't willing to change our values to, to line up with Jesus's priorities, yeah, we'll end up being people who betray him for the things we value more. Is worship a waste for you if you don't see enough visible results from it? if you don't get something out of it yourself. The warning in this passage is that money matters in our relationship with Jesus. If we don't get it in these things in the right order, we're going to end up selling out Jesus because the critics are saying, Jesus isn't really worth all that. Oh, sure, we can leave other things and follow him and listen to his teaching and he's worth something. Maybe give him 10%. But if you have something really valuable, you better hold on to that and make sure you use it for something better than Jesus. You know? <laughs> One of the things that trips us up in our relationship with money is thinking that it's ours. I mean, we think to ourselves that money is what we've earned from our hard work, from our time, our skills, 
Sometimes we credit ourselves for saving well, for investing well. We feel like it's ours rather than it having come from God and still belonging to God in a way that he's entrusted to us for the short time we have it here. Do you see what Jesus said back in verse 7? He said, the poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. I think he's, he's trying to challenge his hearers about what are you doing right now yourself? Because it's so easy to armchair quarterback how other people use their money, isn't it? Right? It's easy to criticize this woman. You wasted that. You should have done something different with it. We're great armchair quarterbacks, but Jesus turns the focus back on each person. He says, you can help them anytime you want. What are you doing with what you already have? Don't live life, especially when it comes to your own money. Don't live life waiting to become generous later. Don't live life waiting for that time to come when you can start to give. Jesus says you can help anytime you want. He speaks of this woman not as having done that one thing. She did what she could. She had it and she gave it. Don't live life waiting for things to finally change so that you can finally give. Jesus says you can help anytime you want. How about now? Because an interesting thing happens to human beings as our resources increase. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of a study from back in 2011 here in the U.S., but I think the results hold true beyond the U.S. as well. Uh, The numbers are specific to the U.S., but the trends are part of our species, Uh, which is in the U.S. in 2011, people who were in the top 20% of income levels in this country, not the top 1%, top 20, and that's a good slice of folks, were compared with the giving financial giving to charity of people in the bottom 20% of income levels in the U.S. And what they found was that people in the top 20% of the income levels in the U.S. gave on average 1.3% of their income to all different kinds of charities. Whereas those who are in the bottom slice of the income pie, who are uh, earning in the bottom 20%, were giving 3.2% of their income to charity. Now, those aren't large numbers, but the folks who had less income were giving more than twice as much as a percentage of their income as those who were earning more. This funny thing happens to us as humans. The more we have, the more reasons we find to hold on to what we have. The more that we have, the more readily we rationalize our sense of needing more to keep going. Now, if you're you're a numbers person, you're quick with numbers, you'd you'd be right to point out that that 20% of the rich gave more money in terms of total dollars in their 1.3% than the bottom 20 did with their 3.2%. But generosity is not fundamentally about how many dollars we give away. It's about how much we're keeping for ourselves. And what's happening here to us needs heaven's values to change us. Jesus says, you can help the poor anytime you want. And when he says that, he's challenging us about what we do with what we have. She did what she could, is how he describes this woman. You know, the Bible teaches us that whoever loves money never has enough money. There's a relationship problem here, not a financial one. It's not a numerical issue. It's a worship issue. If we think keeping for ourselves is more worthwhile than giving away, it's a worship problem. We don't like giving up control of something that we think of as our own. 
We will give, though, in worship because it all belongs to the Lord. All of my money, all of my time, all of my talents, all that I am, it's really all his. And so in worship, I just give him what's already his. But when someone or something is worth more to me than Jesus, I've got a worship problem. Now, be fair to ask, well, does that mean that we should never keep any money for keeping a roof over our heads, paying a mortgage, being able to put the kids in clothes to go to school? What about education? What about transportation? Uh, is it okay to ever take a vacation? And the truth is, God loves to provide for us. He loves us. He loves his children. And it's not wrong to have a house, to drive a car, to send your kids to school, even take a vacation, because God delights to bless his children. But the fact is that faith comes in us putting our trust in him, not in our resources, and that worship will call us to lavish on Jesus things that you might look at and say, well, we could have gotten more out of this if we did it differently. No, when there's an opportunity to give to Jesus, to do something beautiful for him, it's time to break that jar and pour it out on him. Verse 9 Jesus uses a phrase of his. He says, I tell you the truth. He says that when there's a spiritual reality that often doesn't sink in because our perspective has gotten so shaped by a different way of thinking. But he wants to emphasize and drive home for us that what he's about to say is the way things really work. He says, I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know, when he says that, he's promising us the resurrection is going to happen. I mean, you have to connect a couple dots to see that, but track with me here. If there's no resurrection, there's no good news. If there's no resurrection, there's no gospel to proclaim to all the nations. And if the gospel isn't being proclaimed to all the nations, then there's nobody telling her the story of what she did. Here's the point. Because resurrection is real, nothing we give to Jesus is ever wasted. Because resurrection is real, nothing you give to Jesus is ever wasted. If her story is going to be told alongside the gospel, then Jesus must also rise again. Why do we keep telling her story? It's because heaven places value on extravagant devotion to Jesus. We value giving Jesus our best, even when it seems wasteful in the eyes of others, because it proclaims his worth. And this is the good news, because the gospel of the kingdom is the good news. It is the proclamation. It's got at its heart the story of the worth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that the God, the King of heaven, came to earth made himself nothing, died on a cross to take our place, to be our substitute and take our sins, to restore us into righteousness and relationship with him forever. It's the story that God the King came and gave himself, his own life for us. And this kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus and the message that we proclaim about it says that this kingdom doesn't function like the other kingdoms of the world do. Instead, in his kingdom, in the kingdoms of Jesus, extravagant acts of devotion are celebrated, not criticized. It's the extravagant acts that display the worth of Jesus 
that we trumpet, we herald, we proclaim in every part of the world because those are held up as the examples of what's actually valuable in Jesus's eyes. There is nothing more worthwhile, wonderful, nothing more valuable than the King of Heaven himself, Jesus Christ. And here at Mercy Hill, we value the costly actions of faith that declare that Jesus is worth everything. Whether it's in a challenging marriage and family situation, whether it's in sickness instead of health, whether it's in financial giving, whether it's in time and serving, it's worship. It's part of the demonstration and declaration to heaven and earth that Jesus is wonderful and worthy. And we love the beautiful acts of displaying his worth. It's part of the gospel story because the message itself is that Jesus himself is all in all. And so if this strikes a chord in your heart and you're saying, yeah, I want that. That is how I want to live. Let me direct you to two particular areas to help it go deep and become a pattern for your life. The first is keep your eyes on Jesus. Contemplate the Christ. You and I, we are surrounded, we're saturated with advertisement all day, all week long that's telling us there's other things more worthwhile than the smile of heaven itself. That there's other things more worthwhile than just hearing Jesus say, well done. That there's other things that would be better to do with our time, with our assets, with our abilities than to just to lavish them on Jesus himself. Tune out the ads, open your Bible, and soak yourself in the worth of Jesus. Just see him for who he is. Look at the marvelous, incredible way that he treats people in scripture. When we read the gospels, see his priorities, see the way that he lavishes grace on the undeserving like you and me. He's really worthy, so keep him in view. Don't let anything block your view of Jesus. And secondly, stop holding back. Take the opportunities that God gives you in the moments that you have. Because Jesus taught us that where our treasure is, our hearts will be also. When you, have, when you give more to Jesus, he becomes worth more to you functionally. So start giving. Don't wait for something to change. Start giving and unlock the hold that finances have on your heart. Don't love your money more than you love Jesus. It may mean for you taking a private personal look at how you use your money and where financial giving fits in your worship. When you do that, ask yourself, what's this telling me? What, what is the example? What does my data tell me about myself, about how much Jesus is actually worth to me? Because many times we have really good intentions that are very sincere, but we end up just with a lot of other things coming up that feel more worthwhile, that seem more important, and we don't fulfill the intentions of our heart. Our money, well, I'll make it a little more pointed. Your money. Your money is already involved in your worship. The question is, what are you worshiping with your money? Let me urge you to get your money involved in worshiping Jesus because you want to hear him say about you that you've done a beautiful thing to him. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we do confess the ways that we evaluate and reevaluate whether you're really worth the things that it feels like it's costing us to follow you and serve you. And Lord, we ask for fresh eyes to see your worth, 
God, and as we need to change our values, we ask you to help us, Lord, that we'd be in your group, in your camp, when we evaluate the radical devotion of others and when we find the opportunities ourselves to give you our best. Jesus, be our all in all. Amen.